We're back with a new and engaging season of the Wealth Creation Podcast Series brought to you by Investec Wealth and Investment. It's a series where we bring you insights from Investec's community of investment professionals and discuss everything you as a potential investor need to know as you embark on your wealth creation journey. You'll recall that in the first season of the series, we introduced you to the basics of investing, concepts such as the global market and the importance of diversifying your portfolio. We also unpack various asset classes such as cryptocurrencies and NFTs. In this second season, we go a bit deeper. We explore investment concepts such as taxes, fiduciary responsibilities, investing in private equity, trading in shares, and we also include a discussion on technical indicators and risks relating to short-term trading. We'll also look at uh, issues of retirement and how to create intergenerational wealth. Now, if you've missed any of the episodes from our first season, please make sure to catch up on Investec Focus Radio. Moving on to today's episode, I'm joined by Boipilo Rabutata and Barry Shamley, and we'll have a conversation about the ever-important topic of ESG, impact investing, and sustainability. Boipilo is an assistant portfolio manager and analyst working on the Investec Global Sustainable Equity Fund. She's also involved in ESG analysis of global companies, focusing on stewardship, positive social change. She's also motivated to leave the earth better than she found it. Boipilo is also a life skills tutor at FLY, which stands for Fun Learning for Youth, and is a part-time YouTuber focusing on financial content. Barry, on the other hand, is an equity fund manager and manages the Investec Global Sustainable Equity Fund, the Investec BCI Dynamic Equity Fund, and the Investec Long-Term Growth Mandate. He's also a member of the South African Asset Allocation Committee and deeply involved in driving the integration of ESG into Investec's broader investment process and philosophy. To Barry and Moipilo, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, maybe Barry, let me start off with you. Just out of interest, when we talk about ESG, what in essence are we talking about and what implication does it have in relation to how many of you in the markets would have ordinarily approached your tasks of allocating capital? Thanks, Ayabonga. Yeah, I think uh, ESG is a mystery for some people, probably just because it's an acronym. And uh, even when you do dig down and you say, well, it's environmental, social and governance, uh, still that doesn't really mean a lot to people. And that's because there are a lot of underlying metrics within those three pillars that you need to come to terms with as well. I think also crucial is that some metrics are relevant to some companies and others aren't relevant to other companies. So that's a concept called materiality. And you've got to understand what matters for a specific company versus a, another specific company. But really what's changed, I would say, is that investment managers are becoming far more sort of long-term focused in their thinking. In the past, it's been very short-termist and really we've just focused on financial metrics that matter in the short term. But what's changed now is we're looking at other metrics. Well, they're not necessarily financial metrics. They are material and can impact the financial outcomes of a, of a particular company in the long term. What it really boils down to is it's a framework for analysis. Um, helping understand what matters to a company and what may impact the valuation of the company in the longer term. Boipilo, are you finding that a lot more of the discussion, not just among yourselves as investment professionals, but even from the ultimate owners of the capital you oversee, is requiring a lot more of this kind of focus, as Barry says, on a wider set of considerations than just, you know, typical above average returns? You know, a lot of people are asking themselves, 
do we sacrifice, you know, returns by investing in sustainable funds? You know, if we start to look at ESG factors, firstly, there are distinct and different approaches to sustainable investing. These approaches are completely different in their goals and strategies and the effects they have on the real outcomes. And also, I think that many people, you know, still equate sustainable investing with its predecessor, social responsible investing. And they believe that adhering to its principles means sacrificing some financial return in order to make or change the world to make it a better place. But that's not the case. And there's been a couple, you know, of reputable studies that have been done to support the thesis that high sustainability companies significantly outperform their counterparts over the long term. You know, there's a guy called Jay Sharafim from Harvard Business School and his colleagues who did two great studies to support this. And, you know, additionally, just in 2018, Bank of America Merrill Lynch found that companies with a better ESG record than their peers produce higher returns. And these, you know, companies are more likely to to become high quality stocks or were less likely to have, you know, large price declines. So I do think it's important that we start looking above just financial returns into ESGs because there's studies that support that you can benefit from both. Yeah. And, and, and you know, what, what kind of things would we be looking at here? Is it just about not investing in tobacco stocks or, you know, not investing in people who continue to generate their energy in dirty ways? What, what is it? Yeah, I think a good start would be, obviously, there's an organization named the Sustainability Accounting um, Standard Board, better known as SASB, that has identified material ESG issues for all 77 industries. And, you know, ESG materiality refers to whether or not a piece of information is relevant and important to a company's environmental, social governance reporting. These are material issues that are reasonably likely to impact the financial condition or operating performance of a company and therefore are most important to investors. Uh, some ESG issues might be material in, in a specific industry. For example, water stress can disrupt operations of a mining or beverage company which rely on clean water in their production process, but not for other sectors like um, a bank. So investors now look for evidence that their portfolio of companies are focused on the, the, the material ESG issues that matter for financial performance rather than some ill-defined um, commitment to sustainability. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess in scope and conception, Barry, you know, as I bring you in here, a lot of this and even the focus on sustainability is a, is a long-term undertaking. I mean, it's not the kind of thing you just think about from quarter to quarter. And I seldom hear, you know, investment professionals and people, analysts in the market and so on, think beyond just, I guess, a particular day's performance or even a quarterly performance insofar as some of the underlying assets are concerned. What's your thought on this? And I guess that does this challenge the industry to take a much longer term view? Yeah, I think it certainly does. And I think it's it's about time. I think what we've seen, certainly in the past few years, as we mentioned earlier, this intense uh, focus on short-term improvements in return on capital, but that's often been at the expense of CapEx that's required for longer-term growth. So there are companies that need to be investing in things that ensure their sustainability in the long term, but because they wanted to maximize profitability, they've just looked to cut costs everywhere and ensure they can pay out as much uh, earnings and uh, distribute as much dividends as possible in the short term and improve their returns above their cost of capital. But that doesn't work for a long time. It works until your your existing assets are depleted or they're they're run down. And then you need to start investing uh, in uh, things like renewable energy or in the processes that uh, use less water, or even in your labor force, ensuring that your your L&D spend, your 
your education spend on your staff is sufficient to keep them happy, motivated and progressing in their careers. So um, even with that commitment to net zero in 2050, that's a long term commitment and companies can't spend that money overnight. It's got to be budgeted accordingly and they've got to adjust. I mean, obviously, the more they do this, the sooner the better, but it's a lot of money that needs to be spent and it needs to be carefully uh, considered and budgeted for over the long term. Yes, while there may be an impact on short-term returns, it ensures the long-term sustainability of the company and it makes sure it's well-positioned going forward. Is it also changing, Barry, the tenor of the discussion? I mean, in AGMs, at a board level, in some of the committees that we see there, in all of the sites of decision-making around distributional issues, as you've said, so do you reinvest in CapEx or do you save some of that money, cut costs, buy back shares, pay, pay dividends and so on? Um, and right through, I guess, to the broader operational decision making. Are we finding that we're hearing a lot more, you know, and seeing a lot more even in the integrated reports of um, uh, some of the companies you invest in, but also some of the companies, um, you know, whose performance you analyze? Yeah, absolutely. So in the in the larger companies, a lot of them have been uh, providing sustainability reports for a, a large period of time. More recently, we're starting to see ESG metrics getting incorporated into exec remuneration. And then obviously, uh, incentives drive outcomes. So uh, a lot of the exec now are focusing and saying, well, how can I improve my ESG risk score? How can I ensure that uh, I get sort of uh, my, my investors are comfortable with me? You've seen a lot of uh, AGMs where resolutions have been put forward for sort of, uh, I wouldn't say aggressive adjustments, but uh, investors want progress. And if a company is not progressing at the right pace, uh, in, investors are certainly becoming a lot more activist about it and trying to force change, either through voting against resolutions, proposing their own resolutions, or in some case, voting to remove directors that aren't sort of doing the right things in terms of what they think is needed. Mm, mm. And I guess, Boipulo, if, if I bring you back in, um, I guess, to, to this discussion, um, you made a very important point early on when you said a lot of us see ESG within the scope of its predecessor, which is socially responsible investment. And I remember at some stage there was an entire industry and ecosystem on responsible investing, UN compacts and so on. And one would be interested, I guess, for yourselves, where ESG would fit in not only complementing other people's ESG efforts, uh, but also, I mean, any other practical examples that you could share about companies that have done it quite well, and maybe some uh, who have probably come late to the party or, or haven't done it as well. Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple of really great companies that are at the forefront of, you know, sustainability. And, you know, you can think through wind, solar, mining, nuclear, hydrogen, carbon capture, and all these other things within those badges of sustainability or, or transition, rather. There's a couple of good companies um, internationally because I've been working on the on the global stocks. For example, you know, in the wind category, there's Avestas. You know, in the solar, there's a solar edge. And, you know, in hydrogen, there's, you know, Ceres and Air Products and Linda. And, you know, they're companies that uh, fall under the portion that's called adaptation, whereas your Mondis or, or your impact, you know, in, from a South African perspective, who, you know, collect and recycle cardboards and plastics, etc. So there's a, there's a great of um, really great international companies. And I think on a social, because that's more environmental and on a, on a social leg, there's, you know, healthcare companies like Novartis, who are, you know, doing great things with access to, to, to healthcare. And there's really good examples. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, Barry, I mean, I never thought I would I would hear people in the capital markets talk about the circular economy. But if, if one looks at um, you know, announcements that have come through from companies, anywhere from mining companies to those that work in packaging, talking about this notion of reuse of materials, of products rather than scrapping them and then extracting new products from uh, the environment and so on, becoming a much, much bigger part of even the operational focus, let alone in where capital is allocated. Yeah, I think it's it's almost an evolution of sustainability. So I think part one was maybe ESG, part two was sustainability, and then we're now moving into sort of regeneration. You'd refer to it's Sustainable Development Goal 12, which is responsible consumption and production. And that talks to the circular economy that it's about sort of driving waste out of the process. Examples of that would be like in fast fashion. I mean, people buying sort of an item of clothing that they wear once for one season and then they discard it. And I mean, a boy Perel is actually showing me today how intense the fashion industry is in terms of water consumption. So I think it's all about trying to make products that last a long time when they are sort of when their use is over, they can be uh, recycled and sort of find form in a new sort of product uh, down the line. And I think all companies are considering that now because ultimately our resources are limited. And even just sort of considering uh, the renewable energy transition, it's very commodity intensive. And while uh, we need a lot more mines to be developed, I think we also need to get to the point where we are recycling a lot of these metals to be used again. They can't just be discarded. And, and I guess, you, you know, for me, that brings me to something else, which, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on. If indeed we accept, and maybe you must share with me your thoughts on this, Boy Pillow and Barry, that all of these activities, be it how we allocate capital, how we use our materials at firm and household level and how we consume, we do all of those things differently. Can we really mitigate, I guess, the harm that has been wrought on our environment and our societies by our current paradigm? Or are we just, I guess, chasing a moving target here? Maybe we below your thoughts. I mean, can we really, you know, change the world positively here, save the planet, you know, rebuild and reconstruct our communities on a different basis, build back or build forward better, as people often say? Yeah, I think this is a very tricky one. Investor impact and company impact can often be confused. And I think uh, if we think about what impact is, this is the change, you know, that investors cause above what would have happened anyhow. So having impact means that an action, in this case, obviously your investment um, results in real change. For example, reducing greenhouse emissions, whereas a company's impact is the effect, you know, that companies' um, activities have on people and the planet, for example, by selling a product that reduces emissions. So I think, therefore, as an investor, a way of affecting change through investing is either by becoming an active shareholder or, you know, using your voice as a shareholder to convince companies to improve their business practices or investment funds or, or invest in funds, you know, that use engagement as, as a part of their broader sustainable investing strategy. So engagement is a way for investors to drive incremental positive impact. You know, or investors can alternatively encourage change by excluding companies that breach wildly accepted norms, right? Like that's just an exclusionary type of an investor. So investors can play some role in solving um, social problems in general and sustainability problems to be specific. Um, they can challenge also asset managers to use their muzzle to deliver change. I think that's a way you can impact. Um, yeah. I mean, I like this idea that you can use you know, how incentives are configured as a way to achieve incremental change. I mean, you know, a few years ago, probably the, what people thought of when they heard activist investor was probably, you know, the person of Theo Boerter, right? 
raise certain issues about how companies are run and the impact that that would have on multiple stakeholders. It seems now it's more widely accepted, this notion of a triple bottom line. And, I, and I'd like to hear from you. I mean, if, it, if this is the kind of thing we want to encourage, from a regulatory perspective, what do we do? What are some of the things that are already being done? And maybe what is missing, I guess, in, in some of the sort of policy mix that has been proposed thus far? Well, I think the, the, the most important starting point as an investor is to insist on disclosure from the companies that you're investing in. So that has happened to a large extent already. I'd say a large proportion of companies are providing disclosures. An example of that would be uh, CDP, the Climate Disclosure Project. Uh, they have tens of thousands of companies that disclose in terms of the questionnaire that they, so it's a voluntary questionnaire that you do, but uh, I mean, we were part of that program where we send a letter to these companies saying, look, we'd like you to participate in the survey because without actually understanding your own carbon footprint, without understanding all these various metrics, these environmental, social and uh, uh, governance metrics, you're not in a place to improve them. So th that is the very first starting point. Another interesting aspect is I think the best returns you can make are finding the companies that aren't doing this right, engaging with them and getting them on the right track. Because it's been noted that as your ESG risk rating improves, so does your cost of capital reduce and your cost of debt. For activist investors, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to find those companies that aren't behaving well, get them to disclose, help them. Once they've disclosed, they've got a base to work from and then help them improve that base. And they should be very willing and happy to do so because it's good for them. It's good for shareholders, good for management. And, and on the part of the regulators, I think the point was made earlier on, in many ways, you kind of have to shift the incentive mix. If firms feel they won't be able to access capital markets on relatively favorable terms, on the same terms that they would now in future if they don't make these changes, uh, one would think that regulation plays the same role, that it fixes the incentives in a particular kind of way where you, know, you, you risk courting punitive sanction if you do certain things or if you don't do certain things. What are we seeing in so far as that is concerned? Yeah. So it's it's moving at a, at different paces in different jurisdictions. So the Europe was definitely the leader um, with the uh, EU uh, green taxonomy and the sustainable finance disclosure rep uh, reporting. Um, the UK is following that, the US to a lesser extent. I know South Africa has been working on its own uh, taxonomy as well. Uh, and I mean, there, there are various regulations moving at a different pace in South Africa in terms of Reg 28, uh, pension fund trustees are um, required to determine whether the fund manager is in fact incorporating ESG in his or her strategy. And uh, then if not, understand why not, because the default expectation is that you are. I think it's also just too important to highlight that there is a difference between ESG and integration and sustainability. So to me, ESG integration is actually almost becoming the default now. I mean, there's, it doesn't preclude you from owning anything really. It just makes sure you account for all those risks in your valuation. Sustainability is more looking outward, like how is that company impacting the environment or society through what it produces or how it manages its own business. Ultimately, it would be great if we could get to a level playing field around the world. Uh, like I said, people, uh, uh, different countries are moving at a different pace. But particularly with the environment, it affects all of us uh, in all countries equally in a sense that uh, if we don't all work together towards it, if two countries decide they're not interested, it creates a big problem for the rest of the planet. So it is something that actually requires a, a cohesive response. 
um, and something that I suppose uh, someone like the United Nations would have to be quite involved in, in terms of uh, making sure everyone's on side uh, in terms of regulations and uh, having similar sort of outcomes. Uh, having said that, we also do have to be considerate to just transition in terms of emerging markets. Uh, developed markets have had that benefit of uh, cheap fossil fuels for many years. But on the other hand, I think a lot has been done already and a lot will be done in terms of driving finance or capital flows to emerging markets to help them perhaps even leapfrog some of the developed markets in getting ahead in that renewable transition. So I think we must embrace it. Uh, I know it's a, a bit of like going into the unknown, but we have to be pragmatic and we have to be strategic and invest for the long term. Yeah, yeah. And it does seem, below that um, I guess the point is to make sure that all of those activities that contribute to favorable ESG outcomes are not starved of any capital. Are you finding that alongside yourselves, I mean, as global investors, out of Investec, that there are others that are coming to the party, you know, uh, philanthro capital or, you know, DFI capital and so on, uh, that are effectively pooling capital for these environmental, social and governance uh, focused sort of uh, projects or, or pipeline of projects insofar as that is concerned? Yeah, so obviously there's been a, a, a pool, a huge pool of funds towards, you know, sustainable investing in the last couple of years. And I think, you know, as Barry has spoken, as you know, this is the regulation increases and people are forced to adhere, you know, it's going to pull a lot more people to, you know, start thinking, you know, how do we incorporate this and which funds that are, which funds that are sustainable can we look at? Um, and I think that will pull funds into sustainable investing um, as a theme. And I do think, you know, that will probably continue increasing um, as, as time goes on. Mm, mm. And Barry, I mean, one of the things we haven't spoken about, many consumers are a lot more conscious of uh, who they interact with, who they transact with, um, and whether or not those people are as sensitive to the ecological, social, and I guess governance-related issues that we've been talking about. Uh, from an Investec perspective, I mean, what is it that you offer insofar as that is concerned? So I think just as an organization, I think it's important to note that Investec has for probably two decades uh, been very serious and uh, embraced sustainability wholeheartedly. I think we were very early to the party. And I'd say if you looked at us compared to our peers in the banking industry, both locally and uh, in the UK, you'd see that I think we do rate best in terms of our sustainability as an organization as a whole. There have been a number of developments uh, probably in the last two or three years in terms of our product offerings. Uh, the one is the Investec Global Sustainable Equity Fund. Uh, the other is uh, green bonds and uh, sustainability-linked loans that Investec has issued to the market. And then there are a number of uh, other initiatives that we're looking at. Uh, I know the bank has made an investment, a small investment in, a, in an impact fund that works with the export uh, credit agencies to help sustainable development uh, on the African continent. So I think what is key for us, I think as a bank, we know that this is a key focus for us. And I think over the next couple of years, I think you'll just see more and more offerings. I think that in our banking uh, operation, we've uh, tried to encourage our banking clients to understand their carbon footprint. And probably the most important thing I think we're doing is uh, education. So we're trying our, our utmost to ensure that people understand the risks. Uh, there's a phrase I, I use, willful blindness. It's, uh, it's a legal term. It's really people actually sometimes just don't want to know uh, what the problems are because they don't have to deal with them. So through our Road to 2030 campaign and our Class of 2030 uh, education campaign, we're trying to help our clients and our staff understand this 
so that they can change their ways, can potentially change their investments and can change the planet uh, in the long term. And like I said, I think it, it all starts with education. And I guess that's the, that's the important part, because at the end of the day, it's not just about educating the management teams, educating the investment community or even educating all of those who represent the owners of capital. But from a consumer perspective, I mean, I'm quite interested uh, with Bilo and Barry as well, whether or not some of the areas of ESG, I mean, if you take the social one, you know, are we interested as consumers in the labor processes that give rise to the products that we consume or interact with every single day? Are we interested in where the food that we consume comes from or the metals? Uh, Barry was saying earlier on a big part of the green shift that's happening is very, very, you know, resource intensive. Are we bothered about where some of those resources come, be they in our smartphones or even in some of the devices that we use, Barry? Or do we have some of that willful ignorance that you were talking about? Yeah. So I think that is something that is increasingly happening. I think uh, particularly with the millennial generation, they are more conscious of where things come from, how things are made. I think it's probably less so with the older generation, but I think that's part of our our job in terms of this education is understanding supply chains, understanding that, well, maybe something's cheaper, but that you're importing from overseas, but it may be from a country that doesn't respect human rights. And you could be actually creating jobs in your in your own country uh, and uh, those items then would be affordable. I think we're getting there. I think there are certain generations that are more advanced in it. But um, I think hopefully through this education process, people will start asking those questions more. And you'll probably find, I think I saw something today, where people will start labeling even their food in terms of the carbon intensity of food, understanding that, that uh, piece of meat that you eat, just understanding carbon intensity in, uh, in, in various products, I think, uh, is going to increase. Yeah, Boybello, any, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, I'm actually going to try make it personal. Look, I'm not vegan, but I definitely do try to reduce my meat consumption. And I think that's where it starts. You know, it's being aware and, you know, starting to alter before we call on companies to change. We also we also need to be, you know, making a change. I, I reduce my meat consumptions where I have meat free Monday. Um, this is obviously tried to impact the reduction of methane, as Barry has said, methane emissions from livestock are actually more damaging than emissions from transport. So methane, for example, is 28 times to 36 times more potent than carbon dioxide, so CO2. So I think it's just being aware of those things and then trying to see where you can balance it out and, and, and try change yourself. Yeah, I must say, I mean, I, I find whenever I do Meatless Mondays that I sleep uh, a tad better than when I've had a lot of meat in my diet. But also meat takes so much longer to cook. So there must also be a, a massive energy requirement there as well. <laughs> maybe, maybe then, Barry and Boipilo, just as we wrap up, I think for many of our listeners who are, are interested in what ESG approaches as a way of allocating capital and investing might mean for their portfolios, might mean for their consumption baskets, might mean uh, for how they live and interact with the environment, the social context they're in, and how they govern firms and their lives. What message, just as we close, would we have? Boy, Bill, I'll start off with you and then get some perspective from Barry as well on how we make sure that this change, not just in how we invest, is also translated into other changes that we make in our lives to uh, change the world positively, save the planet and uh, save our communities and build forward a bit better. Uh, sure. I think I'll just close off with a quote 
which is very relevant from Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. He wrote to company CEOs at the beginning of 2018 and said that to prosper over time, every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show how it makes a positive contribution to society. And I think this quote is encouraging because it shows just how the world has come in making a shift. I think every generation has to fight for future generation and it's encouraging to see that this generation is you know, starting to take maximizing stakeholder value instead of just shareholder value and taking sustainability and impact investing very seriously. So it's encouraging to see the progress that has come from far and even us having this conversation is good progress. Well, Pilar, thank you very much. I never thought in my life um, and that some of the big asset managers in the world would let go of their sort of Friedmanite ideological origins. So I guess the world is a changing place. And uh, Barry, some of your closing reflections. Yeah, I think the point I'd like to leave everyone with is we're all saving uh, for our retirement, for our kids. And what is the point of saving for that if the planet that we're going to live in in 20 or 30 years time or 40 years time when we retire is just uh, sort of plagued with unrest because of like growing wealth inequality, extreme climate change, like extreme weather events. So it's really like invest in the future you're saving for. That's what I'd like to say. It's no point investing money. And then, yes, you're very rich at it. But at, at what expense? And how, how, how good is that money going to be when uh, you, you get to that point in time and we carry on on the same trajectory that we've been going on? That's it. Barry and Moipilo, thank you to the pair of you for your time and so generously sharing of it. And uh, yeah, folks, that was uh, our first episode in this uh, second season of our Wealth Creation Podcast series brought to you by Investec Wealth and Investment. Don't miss... Uh, our next episodes and if you've missed any of the episodes from the first season please make sure to catch up on Investec Focus Radio from myself your host Ayabong Atawe till we meet again The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of Investec Wealth and Investment International and should not be taken as advice guidance or recommendation Investec Wealth and Investment International a member of the JSC Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, an authorized financial services provider and a registered credit provider.